This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. Do you ever wish it was easier to get your daily fruits and veggies in? So I've been a big smoothie person for a long time. And since living in Boston, one of my favorite treats has been going to this hippie restaurant called Life Alive in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and getting their Lust Alive smoothie, which has your usual suspects like banana and strawberry, but they add ginger, cacao, and coconut gelato. Yeah, it is a dream. But I say I get it as a treat because it is not cheap. Today, we are chatting with two health-conscious engineers who found a way to make fresh, delicious smoothies at the push of a button. Or actually, now it's touchless because of COVID. I'm especially excited about this episode because I got to be the one to introduce Pascal and Morgan to each other. In today's show, you'll hear about how smoothies brought the three of us together and then how Pascal and Morgan took the venture to the next level They built from the ground up a quiet, self-cleaning, and fast smoothie machine, and we talk about why they source their own frozen fruits from Mexico, and why they went from selling smoothies in corporate offices to now convenience stores. My big hope is to one day see smoothie machines in every airport and rest stop, because how fabulous would it be to get a fresh smoothie on the go? If you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple or Spotify for stories like this every Tuesday. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. Leave me a comment or a DM with what you thought of the episode. Without further ado, here's the smoothie, guys. I thought we could start with something fun with your favorite memories of food growing up, whether they're around smoothies or, or something else. My parents loved making me like natural food. So they didn't really give me a whole lot of baby food. So there was a nice photo of me. I guess it's not really a memory because this was pre-memories, but I was like not even one years old eating an ice cream. And it was clear that only half of the ice cream made it into me, but I was really enjoying that half of the ice cream (laughs) that I was actually consuming and the rest was just everywhere else. That is the oldest memory I've found. And then my mom used to also make me uh, mashed up beets, like boiled beets and then blend them up. A lot of red colored foods. Red was my favorite color growing up. I think the, mm. the ice cream was like a strawberry or raspberry ice cream and the beets were obviously red. So your parents were like the OG smoothie makers. I guess, yeah, you could say that um, they didn't really do smoothies, but they did blend things up. They're all about organic, healthy foods or both had medical backgrounds. So they're all about making sure nice. I had good things going into me from a young age. You turned out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I'll see how, I'll see how I do in the South, but uh, so far <laughs> holding up over here. Pascal, how about you? I think yeah, mine is probably not the good memories. It's not on the healthy side. It's probably more and like during holidays in France, they go to the, the croissants and baguettes and orangina. So it's the best lemonade. We, we usually went like every summer to France for holidays because my mom is, is from France. And in the mornings, always my older brother and me, we went to the bakery. For me, I'm, I'm still in love with the, the whole pâtisserie française. 
I've been watching a lot of Great British Bake Off and last night was pastry week. So they made a lot of like creme pat and shoe pastry and all the pastries. Any German foods that you are particularly fond of? Käsespätzle. So every time I'm back to Germany, I eat it's basically sort of like mac and cheese, just much better. And then you, you have different meats with it and um, or semmelknödel. It's like balls of, of bread um, mm -hmm. with egg and milk and it's just, it tastes really well. How do you say it again? Spätzle? Käsespätzle. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I could uh, I could have picked an easier one for you, but <laughs> what, was that, uh, <laughs> what was the thing you made for us with the the sugar log on the wine? Oh, like the, the Feuerzangenbohle? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's like a Christmas thing. It's like a blue wine, like the hot wine. You put fruits in there, so we're back back to smoothies. But it's basically <laughs> hot wine with a little bit of fruit, some cinnamon, and some like Christmas spices. And then you put like this sugar cone on top, and then you put some like eighty percent rum on it, and you burn it. It's one of the rums you should not drink because it's just too strong. It goes into flames nicely. And then it caramelizes the sugar. And the sugar sits on a tray on top of the whole pot. So it kind of it drips into the, the hot wine. It's almost like a bonfire in, in your own house. Sometimes you have some burning marks uh, in your ceiling. <laughs> on the ceiling. Yeah, when, when you're too generous with the spirit. <laughs> right. Just gets darker and darker every year. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So you both ended up studying engineering. Were you also making a bunch of stuff as a kid or like what got you both into engineering? When I was in like elementary school, I was always in like the art classes and building a lot with my hands with clay and all these things. And the teachers always thought I was very creative. I don't know where that creativity went, but I think yeah, going into engineering, I think I always loved like math and, and science. And I felt it was kind of one of the easier subjects. Everything was logical and came together. Then doing mechanical engineering was kind of staying in that route. I, as a kid, I was always dreaming to one day build something. It's it's funny now that we're actually building something. And you know, sometimes I wish we would not have any hardware component, but um, <laughs> I think it's definitely good skills to learn. And um, I'm, I'm happy I, I did. Yeah, I, um, very similar. Um, I always like to get my hands dirty. I, I mean, I obviously had my Legos and my Dupelos, which are the little kids' Legos when I was a kid. I grew up in Cambridge. and the train went behind my house like every hour. So we had the train go by and I was just obsessed with watching the train and all these mm -hmm. mechanical devices. So had a lot of train sets, built a lot of my own things there. Loved to tinker with electronics, first breaking things apart, understanding how they all work, but then eventually learning how to put them back together. Both my parents are doctors. So like my dad would, um, he'd actually take me into the hospital sometimes when he was treating patients and he'd actually show me the whole treatment going on, which was a you know, oh. pretty cool experience um, to go in there and, and actually see the whole thing happening. And he's a radiation oncologist. So there was a lot of physics involved. You're putting very high, powerful like electromagnetic radiation into people's bodies, the very specific locations to try to treat them with like, you know, pretty deadly diseases, um, like very far gone cancers. And my dad really had a knack to like be an engineer with people's bodies and, and save them in situations where like the best hospitals in the world and his partners were like, these guys aren't going to make it. And he'd find a way to make them like come around. So that was really inspiring for me. And so I did actually a little bit of a, in, in high school, I started to work in some like labs in some of the hospital systems, designing like medical devices, also in early college as well. And then I was also building computers. So that was um, another thing I was all about. And that was like, you know, one of my first entrepreneurship experience was starting my own computer company where we built computers for, hmm. for local businesses. Wait, tell us more about that. Was that in Cambridge? What? So I grew up in Cambridge, but then I um I moved around a lot. My my dad worked for a number of hospitals. I was in Washington D.C. for a little bit. Around high school, I moved to New Hampshire area. 
I spent some time down in Boston, then working through the MGH programs, working with some pretty cool people, a lot of stuff with the MRI coils. And then in terms of computers, I went to boarding school over in Andover, Massachusetts. A lot of the students were really into building their own computers. And so I got really pulled into that and joined some like small circles of friends there who are, some of them are now at Google and some of the other tech companies, but that was sort of like from a young age, getting really inspired to build my own computers. That's so cool. You got to do that. Pascal, you also had an entrepreneurial knack early on, right? Yeah, I did all the kind of non-scalable business when I was a kid. I, just, <laughs> I think I was always good at seeing opportunities. I think I was seven when we went like with the family to Greece, and I saw all those vendors on the on the beach. I was selling like sunglasses and hats and all that stuff. But it was so hot, and I just thought like, why don't we sell fruits? So interestingly, I was already at that age in, in the fruit business. I'm kind of <laughs> so I, I told my dad let, um, that uh, I was kind of borrowing some money from him, going to the supermarket, buying like melons. I was even too small to slice them, like these huge watermelons. So my dad helped me slice them. We wrapped them nicely. And then I just went out on the beach and I didn't speak the language. It was in Greece. Um, but I think this was the, the childish charm that helped me sell those. And I think within 30 minutes, I had sold everything, made a nice profit. I was able to return my, my borrowed money to, to my dad. And um, yeah, definitely not a scalable business, but I think that, that entrepreneurial spirit um, stayed with me. Maybe not scalable, but definitely profitable. You saw the need, you saw the solution. You were like, I should have hired more kids to, to take over. The <laughs> yeah. Always yeah I think another day I was just, we were walking around with my family, like for, for a Sunday walk. And I just walked into a restaurant and asked them, and what do I get if I put your business cards into mailboxes? At the time they gave me like five Deutsche Mark, like it's 250 perhaps for, and it's like a, a stack of hundred contact cards. And I just did it. So you also got an engineering degree and then you got an MBA at Harvard. Did you already have an idea in mind when you were going to business school or did it kind of come up one day? The way I thought about my career was always, I want to acquire all the skills to one day be an entrepreneur. Now I think differently about it. I'm I'm still happy I did it because, I mean, I did consulting, but also on the engineering side, I I haven't really worked with like P&Ls and balance sheets and hadn't any idea of entrepreneurial finance. So I learned all those skills during the MBA. I remember when I started the MBA, I was working on something completely unrelated to smoothies. It was in cryptocurrencies. It was when the big, first big hype was, but pretty quickly I found out I just wasn't the right person to do that. And then in a certain moment of reflection, I came up with what then became the idea for smoothie and um, where just kind of all puzzle pieces throughout my life fell together where as a mechanical engineer, like building something that has a hardware component. Um, then I, I lived in Mexico for two years. I always enjoyed walking over those fruit markets and try all the different smoothies and the fruits. There are just so many amazing fruits out there. So I thought also is there a way to kind of share all the beauty we have in the world with, with more people. And I think there's a lot of U.S. consumers who don't even know all those great fruits. And then the, the, the last puzzle piece was then I think uh, meeting Morgan. Jane, you have the highest credit for that because you, you made the intro be- between the two and uh, of us. And we probably would not be sitting here and not doing what we're doing right now if if you hadn't made that connection. (laughs) I'll share my part of the story. And then Morgan, you can fill in the rest of the puzzle. So yeah, at the time I was going through a transition after my startup and I saw Pascal, you had posted something about smoothie in the Harvard Innovation Lab just on the wall. And it looked fascinating. I was like, smoothies, sounds cool. So I reached out and ended up joining the team for that summer and going around with you to different offices around Boston serving smoothies. And then I went to this McGill alum networking event and I saw Morgan there, but it was like just by happenstance as you were leaving the event, 
And I was like, hey, nice to meet you. Like, what are you working on? And you were like, oh, I'm working on this smoothie machine startup. <laughs> what are the odds? And so we chatted more and I was like, well, you have to meet this guy, Pascal. The rest is history. But yeah, Morgan, what was your foray into this venture? I mean, I guess going back before that moment of inception where we, we uh, all came together. I've been working on the idea for a few years, noodling on it. Um, initially, the idea came out of a startup competition that I participated in. It was this thing called Startup Weekend in Cambridge. It was an idea for a trail mix vending machine. And I was sort of helping this person out with this team of about seven or eight people. I was the only engineer on the team. So I kind of figured out how a potential device could work, how it could function, making like healthy on-demand good nutrition for people without the need for an operator. And so we ended up actually winning this competition. There was probably about a hundred participants. So it was sort of a nice, like, you know, okay, this is my first entrepreneurial experience and it was successful, but then what? And the, the more I thought about it, I was like, this is a cool idea, but trail mix just didn't sound right to me. There's a lot of unhealthy things during trail mix in addition to the nuts. I mean, people eat more of the chocolate pieces, I'd say, than the, uh, the actual nuts and the fruit. Um, and the fruit's dried, a lot of the nutritional value is lost. And the other big thing about trail mix is that it lasts forever. That's what's great about it. So why would I need to get in a rush a trail mix from a, a machine and customize it? And I could just go mm. to the grocery store and scoop it all out. So I was like, so what, what, but I like the idea of this, like, you know, on-demand custom nutrition. So I was like, what is a product that's healthy, that's popular, but most importantly goes bad quickly. Like once it's mm. made, you have to consume it within a very short period of time. I was like, well, probably should melt. Melting is something that goes bad quickly. So I'm like, so what, what melts quickly that's healthy? And I, I think you guys know what I landed upon. <laughs> so I was like, awesome smoothies, <laughs> like a smoothie vending machine. That'd be really cool. And then the idea died right away because I said, I don't know how to make that. It's going to be way too hard. I'm not going to do it. So I, I, I kind of pushed it back into like a file I can cap in the back of my brain. But then I came across another entrepreneur, not even a year later. And he's like, Morgan, that is the best idea I've ever heard. You have to do this. You wanted to be an entrepreneur. Just do it. I'm like, it's going to be so hard. Just, you're going to figure it out. So less than six months later, I, I started the journey and really started working on it. When I was doing that, I was also doing a trip to Costa Rica. There was a few vaccines I had to get before the trip. And the doctor decided to do all these other tests on me just because it was New York City. And they just like to give you everything they can and charge you as much money as possible in the city. So, <laughs> so one of the tests that she gave me was a cholesterol test. And everything that she tested me, I came out great. I was like super healthy, super healthy, super healthy cholesterol, way off the charts bad. And I was uh -oh. like, and um, I, genetically, my family just has two or three generations of uh, high cholesterol. It's like traces back to my grandmother. My mom had it. And the doctor said, like, you have one month to change it up or you need to get on medication for the rest of your life. You're going to like be at risk of heart mm. disease and all this bad stuff. And so I was like, well, I'm working on this smoothie idea. Maybe I'll just drink a smoothie every day and uh, see what happens. I did a trip to Costa Rica between then and like when I saw them. So really it was only like two and a half weeks of the month where I actually did drink smoothies every day. So when I got back to her though, like my LDL, which is the bad cholesterol is 171. You're supposed to get down to below 100. When I went to see her, my, my LDL was down to 117. And this is like in a oh, month. Wow. And she said she'd never seen that before. So that's when I was like, Damn. I was more excited about the prospect of what I was working on than actually what it meant for me. It's like, this, like, this mm -hmm. isn't just obesity. This is like oh, diabetes. This is heart disease. This is just so many diseases that people are like facing that could be solved without having to step foot in the hospital. Just drink a smoothie every day. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard to spend a lot of money going to these fancy smoothie stores, waiting in line or making them at home. There's a lot of commitment, either financially or 
discipline wise, I was like, I want to make it super easy for people just like, so it's fun and there's no effort involved. It's just part of your daily routine. And then yeah. fast forward another year or two, you guys both came into my life and really were able to take it to the next level because before then I didn't go to an MBA program. I was thinking about it, but I ended up just working as a professional engineer and then, you know, dropping out for after a little while to work on this project on the side. And I really was just focusing on what I knew how to do, which was build things. So I worked on building the prototype, building the machine. So it was really funny when I met you, Jane, and you told me about Pascal and like Pascal and I went back and forth. I think the first time I tried messaging him, he was too busy. He couldn't see me. So then we tried again, but I read an article. It was about Pascal and Forbes where it described how he got a lot of success this summer, but the next thing he needed to do was try to raise $100,000 to build a prototype. And I just looked in my living room and I was like, that looks exactly like the thing he's trying to get right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Did you text him a picture of it? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, but um, you know, he could tell you the next part of the story. I mean, he's he invited like, me to see it, and I, I thought he was like setting it up at a demo in a restaurant or something, because it was already late. It was very spontaneous. It was after 11 p.m., so I, I thought he's setting up. He sent me this address in in Beacon Hill. And I show up and it was like a residential building. I, I was like looking around, is, is, is it actually a residential building? Or is it a restaurant next door? And it was the residential building, went up to the fifth floor. I was feeling like, whoa, that's weird. It was already 1130 at the time. Like, but yeah, I knocked on his door and then when it was Morgan with the smoothie machine in his living room. And yeah, I think we really connected there. I mean, the, the machine didn't work the way we wanted it. It kind of splattered. It didn't fully blend, but it really doesn't matter. It didn't matter because I think we just connected over the smoothies and I think the, the joint vision and, and passion. I mean, it, it took us a couple more almost dates. I mean, it was like dating at the beginning, like going out for drinks and getting to know each other. But then we actually said, look, I mean, we're really much aligned and complementing each other. Let's just try to take what Morgan had built take my insights from the market and build another iteration of the machine that we can then deploy together in four months. And we came up with this partnership actually at that time already put down like a partnership agreement, talked through all the scenarios, what could happen if we actually decide we don't want to work together after four months, what happens with the IP, et cetera. Luckily, nothing of that really mattered because after four months, we just said we have been so much faster than we could ever have achieved on our own. And we really enjoyed working with each other. I think that was the most important and said, so let's now do a founder agreement and um, let's do this together. That was also Morgan, when you quit your job, I was, I think in my last semester of the MBA. So kind of already started also being full-time on that. The timing just worked out great. And then we started actually raising more than a hundred thousand dollars to really get this off the ground. And I think before yeah, we so even did that though, we, we, so the machine I presented to Pascal, we ended up doing another iteration, but we didn't build it all from scratch. We kind of took the parts that we liked in my machine. And then we just scrapped a lot of the internal components in it and then rebuilt them from the ground up, put them into the machine. At that point, we did, we launched a pilot with the Boston Consulting Group office. It was nail biting to the last minute. I mean, this is behind the scenes, but I remember Pascal was on a trip. We were supposed to launch the machine in three days and I was working on the machine and there was a short circuit that happened on the machine and the, the mm -hmm. thing exploded and, you know, we were supposed to launch and nothing was working. And I, I literally oh, no. had a panic attack. What am I going to do here? Didn't tell Pascal about this until after the fact, because man, I didn't want anyone else to go through what I went through in that moment. But I fortunately found a guy, we were working in this uh, place called Artisans Asylum. We were just starting up there. And this guy saw me, he's like, runs the electrical program. And um, he kind of helped coached me through it. Fortunately, I had just enough spare parts to fix the board, get it going. Three days later to launch in Boston Consulting Group. But what was amazing is, you know, after going through all of that, barely getting it out the door, 
day one, the office had 70 or 80 people there, and we did 60 smoothies that day. And it went nonstop, blending, 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 no problem. Like, it leaked a little bit, so they said, why don't we just put a little tray there and put this, like, like you know, giant cooler behind it. We didn't have it plumbed. We literally had a giant jug of water and a, a cooler that it drained into. And once a day, we had to empty the cooler. And the first time you obviously try emptying this cooler full of fruit water, you don't know how to pour it very well into their sink. So it's like, you know, we had this big spill and did everything possibly wrong. But yet we were just selling smoothies like crazy. And the numbers got higher and higher every day. And, um, you know, one of the other interesting things is we started to hit this plateau where we we're getting 50 to 75 percent of the office population of the day. But then we introduced the booster bar two weeks later. This is where you could customize with your own boosters. And this is pre-COVID times, keep in mind. So like, you know, it was just sort of like this open buffet style thing where everyone could just grab the same spoon and put stuff into your smoothie. But everyone loved it. And all of a sudden, our sales went from like 50 to 75% of the office population to 75 to 100, even above 100, because there were a lot of people drinking two or three smoothies a day. And it was funny, Pascal. I remember you had uh, this checklist that people would have to check if they drank a smoothie. And you'd think no one would actually do it, but actually, since this is a consulting office and they love data, we were counting for about <laughs> 80% of all the smoothies consumed on this checklist. It was So we actually got really good data out of this. I think that was sort of what was one of the big, like, you know, catalysts for that fundraising round we got when we had all this really positive feedback and it was supposed to be a one month pilot. It ended up being a two month pilot. And they asked us to come back in, with another machine a few months later for another month. So we got three months out of what was supposed to be a one month pilot. So it was a really, you know, obviously a lot of learnings. Our first machine we built in-house by hand. Um, and I look at it now, it's like, wow, that we actually launched with that thing. But uh, yeah, that was, that was an experience. And it's funny, at the same time we raised the fundraising round, there was a Boston Globe article that Pascal managed to have come out about us. And it was like on one of the front pages of like, I think the entrepreneurial section. And so we have this old dusty machine there. I was like, yep, that was on the Boston Globe a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> now in the archives. Yeah. That's amazing, by the way, those stats and like how everyone loved it, which I'm not surprised at because Pascal, I remember when we brought in our coolers of frozen fruit into offices. We got lines out the door. Like people love just the experience of it and being able to get fresh smoothies. Well, what was pretty amazing is because I think you went that same office during like the summer before. So the same um, office population had seen us serving manually. So they knew the story. Then eight months later, we came back with the first prototype that obviously didn't fully work, but it was such a step up from what we had done before. I mean, we got a lot of feedback there. I mean, there was like a, it didn't clean properly. It was spilling. I mean, we, we did a lot manually. And I think that's how you do it in the early days. You, you fake it at the beginning. Yeah. We were, also one of us was sitting at the office on. every day. Like was t we're taking turns sitting in the office every day during the pilot pretty much. Yeah. The consumption went so much up that like we had to change the water buckets three times a day. And then when we missed doing that, that was a, a big mess. So I just started working out from, from there and just. As, as we needed more water, just changing the water buckets, filling in uh, fresh water and just keeping it going. But then the other feedback we got is from some people in the office, oh, the machine is too loud. So we, mm. when we developed the next machine, we actually put like soundproof material in there and really got the noise down. And then we came again a third time with the new machine and everyone loved that we actually had taken their feedback and implemented it. Um, and also afterwards, now we, we pivoted in the convenience store segment, a lot of those things that we implemented still help us today. So when you look at machinery right now in or like food equipment in the C store segment, a lot of them are like really loud. It's almost like excavators <laughs> working there. And everyone tells us, wow, your machine is not loud at all. The only thing you hear is like the chunks of fruit, like spinning mm. around and being chunked up. 
and and kids love it because they hear there's something going on and then they can watch it. It turned out to um, really make our product better. I remember our first trade show because like we brought the machine down across the country. We drove it all the way from Boston to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we were at a trade show and we were running the machine and I was thinking, uh oh, the relay isn't working, the blender isn't turning on. But no, it's just that because we're in a trade show and the volume of people talking was just like, you know, so loud compared to the machine, you couldn't even hear it. It was like whisper silent and it was working fine. It took a little, a few levels of refinement to get to where we are right now with that, that noise. How were you able to dampen the sound if you can share without giving away the secrets? I mean, there's, there was kind of, we did two stages. The first was the duct tape approach, which is just, we put soundproof material on it. And that was actually, we actually, even our first machine at BCG, I think we did that, but you really, if you want to solve a problem, you don't want to do duct tape. You want to solve it at the root. So we were using an off-the-shelf blender. And we still use something that's based off of off-the-shelf blender, but we went with the manufacturer who's been building this for over 40 years, actually 60 years, out of Switzerland. They're, they're really good, like the best-in-class blender manufacturer. And we just took the motor and the drivetrain that they have for it, and then we built our own totally custom blender around it. So we're using a much better quality motor and then built something that was actually for our specific applications. So right now we have zero soundproofing on our machine, actually. The source of the noise has gone way down. The motors, it's really the blade hitting the fruit. That's the noise now. And people like that sound. Mm. You don't have, but you don't have that high pitched ear piercing sound for the motor. And I think the other thing we did was before we had a pump in there because we had these fresh water buckets and needed to get the water out. Now, as we're in commercial, we just use the, the pressure from, from the wall. So we don't need to pump and the pump was really noisy. Yeah. And also mm. the parts that often failed. So it was actually good to get rid of that. Yeah, less leaks. And, and yeah, it definitely took a lot of engineering thought to really make a system that would allow the water to flow without pressure drops so that it could do that. But that was, you know, a fun, nice challenge. And we got rid of components. And again, it's the water system is really quiet now as a result of that. I saw that you guys filed a couple patents. Was that around the, the noise piece or any of the water stuff? Yeah, we've done a few. The first one I filed back in the day before I met Pascal, just sort of my initial concept of that machine. Actually, the day that Pascal graduated, we actually got the patent issued. So that was that was really nice. Uh, Double win. I know. <laughs> so we got two nice pieces of paper on the same day. But um, and then the, the other ones we Pascal and I filed together. So that's more refinements on really the software behind our machine and the integration of all the stuff that goes together. It's it's our system is without going into the way the sausage is made is it's not rocket science. I mean, we're, we're blending smoothies. Each individual component on its own is actually not super complicated, but how do they all come together? How do they all work together? How do they stay reliable over thousands of cycles across thousands of machines where users interact with it unmonitored uh, and people can like, you know, people will do crazy things either because they're, you know, not the most thoughtful. I've had this joke I say, but you know, how silly people can outsmart you. I use a different word than silly, but uh, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah. So that's like one of my sayings that come from working at Smoothie. I think we manage in, in our lab to simulate ninety-five percent of misusage of the machine. But then I think it's just important to put it out in the field because things happen that you don't expect. So we had these lids on, so people would remove the lid, take the cup in, and place it in the machine. But some of them thought it would be a good idea to actually pour the cup into the cup holder and then make it blend. I don't know if they would then come with their spoon and eat it out of the machine, or I, I don't know how the, the consumption works afterwards, but. But at the end, um, what we felt there is if those things happen, it's probably on us because we didn't guide them enough. And we also found there's very limited attention span. People come in, they're on their cell phones, they have maximum one minute for you. And we just learned that we need to be always focused on less text, more visuals, 
and just put the instructions everywhere. And now we have this header. I mean, the one that you can see in the back of the video um, that says the, the instructions on the cups. We have instructions on the screen and on our machines and instructions. And then also on this, this seal that you remove from the cup at the beginning, you again have two steps. And then we have a sticker even on the machine. Yeah. So it's a lot of instructions have grown over time in the early days. We almost didn't have anything. We put a, a couple of posters out there, but it was never intuitive. Yeah. So it took us like many iterations to really get the process down to be something very simple, three steps. And what is really important for us is always be close to our customers, observe them, gather data, be humble, even though like, then we thought, okay, now this, this machine is the one. Now we got it. Still, there's so much more you can learn. And Yeah, and that's and really what our patents are, is the learnings that we found. And then what are the most valuable things? One of our patents is how all that integration happens. And there's really two elements to it. One is the packaging. We've come up with our own proprietary packaging. And then how does the machine interact with that packaging? Like the mechanical systems, the software systems, the electronics, the sensors, the plumbing even. What we've really come down to this now process where you just take that seal off the cup and the machine blends with the lid still on. And how do you blend with the lid on out damaging the lid? And then when you take the cup out, it still has a perfect seal around the straw. So if you knock it over, it's not going to spill everywhere. How do you do it in a cleanly way? And so we've made it simple, but it was the journey of two plus years. I think we both really put a lot of eggs into that basket and, and we're really happy with the end results. I mean, there's still always ways to improve it, but the, the concept is this, like, you know, custom lid, it's custom blender, and then the system that integrates around that. So mm. we have about three patents on those like different elements. So are you guys like the Keurig of smoothies? We, Would you call it that? We, we, uh, we can do that on Nespresso because um, one of our advisors um, is, is from Nespresso. But yeah, Nespresso or Keurig of smoothies, we, we use that saying sometimes. We, we also say smoothie store in a box because, um, you know, we really want to emphasize that our smoothies are the best quality smoothies you're going to have. There's no added sugar. There's no concentrates. It's really just fruits and vegetables. Flash frozen at peak ripeness. Frozen fruits actually in general healthier for you than fresh fruit. Uh, if you live in Nicaragua and you get it straight from the vine, at, like right when it's about to fall off the tree, then okay, yeah, then it's a little bit different. But if you live in the Northeast or away from where those fruits are produced, and especially like, you know, big farms, you, you know, they get it at peak ripeness and they flash, they, they keep all the good nutrients. There's a tiny bit of loss of vitamin C in the blanching process where they boil the, the outside of the fruit quickly just to kill any... Um, bacteria. But other than that, you're getting pretty much everything. And for us, the other big thing is we don't add ice to our smoothies because you already get that milkshake consistency with just the fruits and the water. If in the US, if you go to the supermarket, get frozen fruit, you never have this peak ripeness. Yeah. It's always like the strawberries, they're half white, half green. And the reason is it's just easier to be processed when they're still hard. Often they just put sugar on top. And I, I, I was able to see that firsthand when visiting our farms. It's mind blowing how the ripe fruit is almost thrown away. And I think we have a huge opportunity also to, to use ugly fruit or what yeah. is considered ugly mm, food in the end for right. us, we use chunks of fruit. And what really matters is yes, it's high quality and it's, it's high in taste, but often this, this ripe fruit is much tastier anyway. Yeah. And, and the nice thing is that we've created this whole system and value chain where now you don't need an operator present right now. You just need a cashier at a convenience store. And we want to actually have a full payment system integrated with our machine in the next iteration. So really removing all the labor with, uh, with owning a smoothie store and really bringing it to upstream, allowing you to just get these high quality smoothies at the, we used to say at the push of the button, but we've even removed that. So now it's just a fully just, it's a grab and go solution. Touchless yeah. with yeah, COVID was, and all? With COVID. I mean, when, when COVID hits and you looked at the convenience store, like a lot of these, these soda fountains and other dispensing machines, they were just out of service. Or they asked mm. you to go to the cashier, but who would then also ask for that? So 
instead of just saying, okay, the, the market is closed, we just said, how can we innovate and come up with a better experience? Because COVID will stay around with us for, for a while and there will be new sicknesses coming in the future. So let's be prepared for that. Exactly. So you guys develop your own supply chain with farmers for the fruit? Yeah. So what, what we found is, and we worked initially with local partners, but we couldn't get the high quality fruit and also not delivered um, at the standards that we were expecting. We were working with the big companies and it's mind blowing what happens in the United States. I don't know how those companies mm. get their licenses, but we got frozen fruit delivered in a refrigerated truck. It was melting. Mm. I had to reject some of the boxes. I think one was open. Um, problem, one of the boxes is totally yeah, open. The problem is for us, since we pack our cups and initially it was all hand packed by us in, in the Northeast, when the chunks stick together, it's much harder for a smoothie machine to blend. So for us individually, quick frozen is important. So when the fruit is harvested, it's washed, cut, and then it goes through this IQF machine that you have individual chunks and then it's packed into cups. So not breaking the frozen supply chain is super important. We didn't find like reliable partners in the United States and also we're not happy with, with the taste of the fruit. So having lived in, in Mexico helped me to reach out to partners there who actually had much more flexibility also in terms of just like volumes. And in, in the US when we looked for co-packers, they would ask us to like lock in certain projections, pay penalties if we miss them. Um, now with COVID mm. happening, we probably would be out of business if we had agreed to any of those projections. I think also in a startup, your projections are always off. So the partner we found in Mexico now, they own their own plantations. They have a great network for additional fruits. I had the chance to, to visit them, to meet the farmers, make sure they work in fair conditions. They're like fairly compensated. I think that's also very important that we want everyone in our supply chain to take their fair share. I can tell you like on the strawberry farms, people are working really hard all the day. They sit back down. Like it's, it's very hard work. And I couldn't imagine myself doing that like day in, day out, but then they have the music with them, like they get on and then they, they kind of smiley. And it was just, <laughs> it was great to see that the things that we care about. It, it helped us also understand better the food supply chain by going to the source, by knowing what we need to specify. We now specified the bricks level, that's the sweetness of the fruit, the, the size of chunks. It was just, it was a great learning for us. I mean, both of us, we're not out of the food business. We, we come from the engineering side, but then I think we also have an opportunity to bring in data and the engineering part into the food supply chain and try to better control that, monitor it. And hopefully in the future also semi-automate or even fully automate our packaging of the cups as, as we get to scale. Did you say some fruit companies will add sugar to the raw fruits before they ship it? A lot of the fruit that you receive here in the US has, has sugar added with it. Yeah. What? I, mean, I, I would always recommend to like... read well the, the, the label. So I, I don't say everyone, but I, a lot of times when the fruit is not ripe enough, they just compensate with sugar. A lot of fruit is wasted in our supply chain. It's about 40% of all food produced in the US is wasted. So. It's so sad. I mean, that's, that's another reason why I think the frozen supply chain has so much potential here is that you're not adding, introducing chemicals, you're not adding sweeteners, you're really getting the actual true value of it, but you're also allowing it to last longer. Yes, it behooves you to monitor it very thoroughly and make sure that the supply chain isn't broken. And that is the challenge. But if you're able to track that and have partners that are reliable or are, and held accountable for it, then you can really have this versatile supply chain that's, you know, bringing really good nutrition and actually having a much better impact on the environment, which honestly, the food industry is one of the most environmentally destructive industries out there. I mean, this is one of the biggest contributors to climate change is, is the food industry. So like, we really think that there's a lot of potential here for us to have a profound impact. And it's not even that hard with, with our system. It's like, you know, it almost automatically is a sustainable value chain. 
based off what we've developed. So we're really excited about that. That could be a whole podcast on its own, yeah. which I would love to talk about because <laughs> my background's in food sustainability. But yeah, that that makes me kind of angry about the sugar thing because I, I know with tomatoes and some vegetables, they'll spray ethanol on it to make it ripen faster during transportation. But I didn't know that about sugar. Morgan, you mentioned earlier how often it's like a trade-off of like either you buy unhealthy foods or the healthy options are usually so expensive. Like I got a juice the other day. It was like $9. It's like, I better be glowing after this juice, you know? Um, how much do you guys charge per cup? So our model is, is different in the sense that right now we work with distributors and we sell our cups to distributors and then the retailer ultimately sets the retail price. It really mm. depends on the, the location. So we have seen our smoothies retail at seven ninety nine in like very affluent locations. Um, but we designed the pricing model to work at a, as a five ninety nine price point. So it's something that can really be scaled across the the, the United States. Got it. And it is a full size, like fresh. Yeah, sixteen ounce. Yeah, smoothie. Um, and mm -hmm. as Morgan said earlier, like no added ice. So really what you consume is the fresh fruits and vegetables and a little bit of water added. How did you guys decide to go from selling to offices to selling to convenience stores? Was that a COVID pivot? No, that was before COVID actually. Yeah, it was, I think, October 19. Yeah. And I mean, we were both like very critical of the, of the convenience store segment because we thought it's like all like sugary, unhealthy, cheap stuff. And cigarettes um, and, and gasoline and lottery cigarettes. tickets, beer, yeah. all that. <laughs> but if you think yes. about it, that's exactly the reason why you need something healthy and fresh and on the go. And so we got invited to a trade show back in, in fall 19, where we just put a machine out there that was not ready yet. It was with 3D printed parts. It was a prototype. And we said, let's try to sell it for $10,000 and as a special for the trade show. We were show. testing it in the hotel room the night before with like the drain going into the toilet of the hotel room and running water from the sink. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so we, we had been fixing it like the last minute, but amazingly, it was just eye-opening at the trade show. Everyone loved it. We we're the only green booth, the only one saying no added sugar. All the others advertised was we add real sugar. And then even the mm. big chains came to us and, and were excited and someone else bought the machine on the show. So uh, it was just this eye-opening moment where we said, well, let's look at the convenience store industry. There's definitely a, a huge demand. And then the other thing we had seen in the office segment, the demand was there. Um, there was almost too much consumption for us to cope with. But the question mm. was, how can we bring the frozen cups into the office? And right now there's no existing frozen supply chain. So in the convenience store industry, you have retailers that have frozen storage or backup storage. You have distributors that have the frozen trucks and the frozen warehouses. So we can plug right into that existing supply chain. And one thing we said early on strategically, we don't want to build all the operations ourselves. We rather want to partner with mm. people who can do it better than us because we already, with the hardware part, with the software, building the brand, controlling the supply chain, there's so many elements to our business that we think we can just scale better if we, we ramp up the right partners. We were getting a lot of positive feedback in the office space, but a lot of the offices didn't even want to pay for the smoothies. They wanted the employees to pay for the smoothies or in the very least, like part of that. So like it was going to be really challenging from like, you know, going from these like things where the office is paying for the smoothies in our initial pilots to then maybe either paying for it fully on their own or at least having it only partially comped and then having to take some pocket change out for a smoothie. And we knew that that was going to cause sales to drop. We also knew it was going to be challenging to monitor that and track that. So convenience stores, they literally opening up their pocketbooks to buy full machines with this prototype. And we, we had someone like Costco said, oh, you have down payments, $500. And she just wrote a thousand dollar check. So can you get it to me sooner now? That was a wow. huge other push for why convenience stores 
looked great. We know the office is a great segment and um, we are now also developing partnerships to get back into the office. But what we said is let's first do one segment right, get to scale and then explore all those other opportunities. And the office is one, gyms is another one, schools and universities. I'm going to push for airports and rest stops. I was just on a road trip and like stopping at gas stations. It was so hard to find anything fresh. (laughs) It's like there's like limp salads maybe (laughs) or like cut up fruit, but you don't know where that's from. We try to change it very soon. Those rest stops are kind of the sweet spots for us. And the answer the nice thing about the convenience store market is that actually you can hit all of those other locations through convenience stores. And we're actually doing that. Like we are going to opening up a convenience store that's at a, a university. A lot of these convenience stores have locations at airports and rest stops as well. Can't wait to grab a smoothie one day when I'm traveling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you both, what do you remember being the hardest day you've had as a founder? I think it's every other day. <laughs> I mean, now we can talk about it because they're like, one is probably emotionally hard when things didn't work out the way when we deployed. I mean, we always deployed the machines way too early. I'm still happy we did it because I think it gave us valuable learnings. You develop a, a thick skin because you get a lot of frustration also from the owners when things don't work. And especially in a convenience store segment, the machine has to be up and running. It's 24 seven. They give you the prime spot on the counter and they expect you to work. And there was one deployment that just didn't go the way we wanted it to go. And now we speak about it openly because it was our old generation of the machine, but just at certain moments, it just timed out and then it was kind of cleaning and then being stressed. And I remember one time I just, I opened the door in the service menu and then just it sprayed out <laughs> into the shop and then I was just shielding <laughs> with my own body. And, um, oh, yeah, and the it same got on the screen too. So the screen through. turned black for an hour. <laughs> Yeah. So a lot of those things happened. And then obviously also the patience of the owner decreased over time. And I think that that just shows how important it is to pick the right customer at the beginning, someone who understands where you are. And I I remember I'd always said like the machine is not perfect and things will happen. And so I can't promise it will work perfectly, but what I promise is whatever happens, we will be there to fix it. And I think having a customer with that mindset who understands that is very important in the early days. We, We have this giant pineapple mascot where we do Kind of when we launch sites and then we go into that and then dance and have music. Someone needed to go into the mascot and Morgan said, I go, I go. He just wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to hide. <laughs> um, and he also yeah, one of us no. needed to drive to the shop. He's like, yep, I'm going, I'm driving to the shop. I'm getting out of here. I'll yeah. grab, I'll grab the thing there. <laughs> Leave yeah. Pascal to deal with the yeah. owner. <laughs> but, but now, you know, now we can laugh about it um, because I think the important thing is that we, we were humble and we, we took all that feedback yeah. in and, and decide, okay, what, what do we need to change for the next version? And the machine we have today would never exist without that experience. And I would say it's good we didn't start in convenience stores because convenience stores, they're really cutthroat. I mean, and it's just the nature of the business. I mean, it's just a dog-eat-dog world. Even like the nicest intentional convenience store owner, they're, they're like literally making razor-thin margins. So that's like they, they don't have room for error. And there's some that are willing to take some risk on us, but they can't really afford that risk. We need to perform at like the same level as a billion-dollar company that's been building these machines mm-hmm. for 10 years and they expect that of us. And during the last year, like we spent the whole year just building this whole new generation of machine from the ground up. And we used COVID as a way to do that. And so now we have something that's so far ahead of what we had ever before. And really at this point, it's all software, which is also really nice. It's no longer really a hardware issue. It's how can we improve the software to deal with these unexpected user behaviors that, you know, it's still, we've made it so much better. People still do funny things. Even you'll, they'll always <laughs> find a way to outsmart you. 
You guys have done so much in the last few years, and I can't wait to see where you guys go next. In closing, I'll ask you two questions and you can choose which you want to answer. One is, how do you stay sane as an entrepreneur? And the second is, any advice you would like to leave for listeners who want to start their own business? So to your first one, I became a dad a year ago. I don't know if I told you, Jane, but um, so that... Oh my God, I'm so excited. I choked. <laughs> That's so exciting. So that, Congrats. I, think that, I had no idea. That, yeah, that grounds me. And I think now and now I have two babies, the, the real baby and then the, the business baby. Yeah, really enjoying that a lot. And then in terms of advice, whenever you have an idea, just try it out. There's so many simple ways to get it done. As we did in the early days, manually serving smoothies, you didn't need a machine for that. Just think about the, the easiest MVP and just do it and, and see if you enjoy what you do. And if you feel like that the learning is exciting and if that is the right journey, because I think a lot of people have good ideas, but they think there's so much required to get to the next stage. But then I think in reality, it's just, it's a small thing. And then from there you do the, the next small thing and you build confidence that, that you can do it and you end up doing great things. And there are so many great businesses out there that started very small and, but just having the courage to do the first step. For me, how to stay sane, don't do what I did in early on in the business, uh, which was literally have no experience or understanding of what you're doing. And just kind of, I tried to like, just basically steamroll my way through it. And it took me a good few years to understand how things actually played together and how to make it all work. Having gone through that whole brute force method, like don't care for yourself as much, like don't care for your well-being, just kind of go ahead. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone, but it's also got to me where I am today. Oftentimes you should not be doing a lot of the things you think you should be doing as an entrepreneur and it's good to start out and appreciate everything, but like quickly learn where your weaknesses are and the things that you just don't enjoy doing and don't do them. Give them to the right people. Be good to yourself and have the right people around you who really appreciate you for who you are and understand that you're not going to be perfect even when things fall on your face and you need to have that support. And do something outside of your business. Please do that and do something that you really enjoy. Have at least one hobby. And yeah, my advice to entrepreneurs is like, do it because you love it. Don't do it for the pain. Don't do it for the glory. Don't do it for the short-term rewards. Don't do it because you think you can be, want to become a venture capitalist and brag that, oh, I did a startup for six months that failed miserably, but now I'm a venture capitalist because I know so much. So <laughs> Pascal's smiling because there's a lot of people who do that. And I, I think it's, and it's not, um, just kind of a waste of your time and it's kind of meaningless. Like do it because you actually, it matters to you which clearly it matters to both of you. And, and that shows through the work and dedication you've put in. And I'm so glad the stars aligned yeah. and you guys were able to come together. You're the star, Jane. Well, you're, together. You're <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to keep checking in down the line. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for being here. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.